So it's October, and that means the Supreme Court is back in session. As of 1917, it's the uh, tradition of the Supreme Court to convene on the first Monday of October. Uh, there was once a film with Walter Matthau and Diane Keaton called The First Monday of October. I'm sure you don't remember it. But there was a name associated with the Supreme Court, and, and uh, not everybody that's on the Supreme Court gets remembered in this way, but there was a famous Supreme Court justice by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was born in Massachusetts. He went to Harvard. He was appointed as an associate justice of the Supreme Court in 1900 by Roosevelt and served for 32 years. And so that is a person of a towering intellect to do stuff like that. If you have ever read or ever tried to read a legal brief, you know it is not for the faint of heart. Because somebody like Oliver Wendell Holmes and those of his ilk, they're the ones that are able to distill all of this complexity in, in case law and in the case that they're hearing and try to integrate everything that they know about the Constitution and uh, the United States Code and then try to distill it down into its essence so that an opinion can be written. And that takes a pretty stout mind because you're going to have to enter into the complexity of all of that information and somehow draw out the simplicity, draw out the essence of what's there. And that's why at one time late in his career, Oliver Wendell Holmes said this about that kind of practice. He said, for the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. And we all go, fascinating. What does that even mean? I mean, the sentence alone, complexity of grammar right there. What's he getting at? I'll tell you what he's getting at. Um, Two years ago, we moved here from Dallas, and we had um, bought a used Murphy bed. Uh, we got it out of a guy's apartment. Uh, it took us five hours to move it from his apartment, get it down in an elevator, put it on the pickup truck, and get it back to our house. And we thought, when we would get it here, it'll be simple. We just have to get strong backs and move it upstairs to the second floor. Right? No problem. Well, they get it off the truck, and they look at us, and they say, that's not going anywhere. And that's certainly not going up a second floor. Forget it. We thought, it'll be simple. Pick it up, go up, lay it down, bolt it in. And then you get into the complexity of the matter and you realize, "Mm, no. So we put it on Craigslist. But before we sold it, we called Brad Green, who wears a cape, you might know sometimes. And he comes over and he looks at it and he says, I know what to do. He dismantles the entirety of the bed and moves all the pieces upstairs, reassembles it, reinstalls it into the wall, and he's like, presto. We're like, what? That's it. That's the simplicity on the other side of complexity. We thought, simple, right? You've done stuff. You had projects and you thought, this will be simple. I have the manual. And then you take the engine apart and you have all these parts left over and you go, whoops. There's a complexity to it. I had no idea. And then you have to call somebody. And then they come over and four minutes later, they're done. Why? Because they've wrestled with it for so long. They've lived inside of that complexity for so long that now stuff just sort of emerges almost at will, second thought. That's, that's the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And we all know it, even if we can't understand his sentence. I think my argument to you is, here at the beginning, is that it is easy for us to have that same experience when it comes to the gospel. That we think, you know, there's a simplicity to it. And then we start hearing a lot of these ideas like that Jesus is both God and he's man that he comes to speak a message of both judgment and of hope. 
that, that in his life and his death, he satisfied both justice and mercy, and that there's something about relationship between by faith alone, and yet those faith are going to manifest in good works. And, and before you know it, you've got all of these ideas and all these categories um, frothing up, and you go, I don't get it anymore. And we somehow need to wrestle with it in a way that we can find the simplicity of the gospel on the other side of its complexity. Well, congratulations. I'm here to help. Or rather, Isaiah is. We're going to listen to a passage in Isaiah that you've probably heard a thousand times. But my argument to you is that he is going to help us hear the simplicity of the gospel on the other side of its complexity. This passage is about a servant, a servant that anticipates the even greater servant of Jesus. And this servant has a song, a song that at first was sung to all of Israel, but a song that anticipates being sung to the whole world. And in that song, by this servant, you are going to hear the simplicity of the gospel on the other side of its complexity in three ways. It's about three things. It's about a plight, it's about a passion, and it's about peace. A plight, a passion, and peace. So if you're able to stand, we're going to hear a complicated passage from Isaiah to listen for the simplicity of it. We're in Isaiah 52. We'll start in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who's believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion of him with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the song of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Okay, so yeah, complicated, right? That's a lot. How do we grasp even a fraction of it? Well, we're going to try. I mean, we can't even grasp how even it fits into a historical context. If you've been with us, then we have said that Isaiah is writing into a moment when Israel, a people called out for God's name, has now split into two, polarized, despising one another. They're divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And in the 8th century BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, is carted off in exile to Assyria. And 200 years later, you've got the king of Judah, Hezekiah. Isaiah comes to warn Hezekiah. There are people who are coming to make promises to you, promises of protection, promises that their power will preserve your power, and you shouldn't listen. Don't be seduced. And Hezekiah doesn't listen. And in time, the kingdom of Judah, which cozied up with Babylon, is soon thereafter carted off with the brain trust of Babylon back to Babylon. But all of that historical context, none of that is spoken of explicitly in this passage. This is a passage about a servant with a song, and it kind of lives up here in the ether, even though all of that is the stuff of the condition on the ground. And what this passage is out to tell us about, first of all, is that there was a servant, and that servant was commissioned to service for one express purpose, to respond to a plight. The simplicity of the gospel on the other side of the complexity of it is to understand that there was a servant who responded to a plight. Okay, what's a plight? The demonstrators in Hong Kong, however many months on, are in the midst of a plight. They're out to survive and remain resilient against the crackdown of a regime that has a great deal of fear when it comes to democratic reform. That's their plight. There are Kurdish Syrians in the north of Syria that are in the midst of a plight, being attacked by Turkish forces. That's their plight. You know who's also in a plight? Honeybees. For 15 years, hives are being decimated. Why? According to the four Ps. Poor nutrition, parasites, pathogens, and pesticides. And so people keep wondering, what are we going to do to fix it? That's their plight. A plight is nothing more and nothing less than a precarious, dangerous situation that if you just want to kind of look at it in a more abstract way, if you know of somebody who is kind of continually dancing at the precipice of a cliff, metaphorically speaking, that's their plight. That's their challenge. If you know someone who is afflicted in heart and mind and circumstances, that's their plight. And what Isaiah is out to tell these people and to tell us is that the human condition is one in which we find ourselves in a plight. And according to Isaiah 53, verse 6, our plight is rather simple. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, each one, has gone to his own way. Everybody falls into the category of being like a sheep. What are sheep? Sheep, um, they don't think much. Uh, They don't think much about what they know. They don't think about much what they should know. They just wander. They go following their nose. 
That's what sheep do. And therefore, what they wander about, it's not aimless. They don't just sort of say, well, this is a nice piece of country, or I'll go and look at that kind of flower. They're following their desire. And the nature of a sheep, when it follows its desire, is that frequently it finds itself in a place of error, a place of danger. And that, Isaiah, is telling Israel, that's where you are. You follow, you wander, you go where you will to find satisfaction for your desire, and sure enough, in time, you find yourself in the midst of danger. You have gone astray. The Hebrew word there for astray is to wander into error. That's their condition. And that, that condition, it's not a new thing for Israel. It, it's, it's an ancient way. It's, it's, a, it's a human way. And the reason we can say something like that is because all you have to do is go back to the garden, right? What's the promise? Here's provision and protection and purpose, you who I've just made. This is all you got. You got one rule. Don't touch the tree. Just, just don't go there. But what happens? They see it. And what does the text say? The fruit was pleasing to the eye and looked good for food. So they ate. Their senses conveyed a certain way of seeing what they were seeing, and yet it was coming up against what the word, revealed word of God was. It was saying, I know it might look good, just trust me. And they say, thanks, no. Because whatever they saw that was pleasing to it, there was a greater promise attached to it. And this was the promise. You eat that, you won't need him anymore. You'll be fine. You'll be on equal footing. You'll rule the roost. And they believe it, and they eat, and they lose it all. The well is poisoned. The devil gets in deep. And no training in ethics will ever relieve them of the problem. That's the plight. That's the plight that Isaiah is speaking into those moments in that 8th century or 5th century BC. It is the plight into which we find in the garden. And the question is, though, why? Why do we wander like that? Because, look, the, the, you know, Sheep going astray and people eating a fruit. I know that's all out there. But what, what about us? How, how does it apply to us? Why is it that you and I wander? Why does it seem so natural? It's not because we're not looking for anything. It's because we're looking for something. Tara Isabella Burton is a columnist. She's an author. I heard her story a couple weeks ago. And she tells the story of going through a mental breakdown. And she goes to Italy on vacation and goes with a friend, and they themselves commiserate about the hardness of this life and of the darkness they can't seem to escape. And so they are looking for something to fill that hole. And therefore they turn, or not therefore, they just choose to turn to the New Age. They, they go to a, a local New Age shop there in Italy. Uh, they buy a bunch of tarot cards. They get a bottle of wine. They get a bunch of candles. They go down to the coast of the Adriatic Sea. And there they pop open that wine, they pull up a tarot card reading, they light the candles, and they consecrate themselves to the Greek god Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. And they declare themselves what were known as menads, ancient followers of Dionysus. A menad literally means the raving ones. And they commit themselves, they devote themselves to that magic. And so they begin to love magic, they begin to love tarot card readings, the whole shebang. And she explains in this little article she wrote a few weeks why she went there. Why did she wander toward that power? Listen to her very candid words. 
You want unlimited power? You want passion? You want freedom? You want to really feel things? You want a world that is bigger and better and truer and more significant than the one you're living in right now? Be prepared to give up something to get it. Be prepared to become someone you don't recognize. Be prepared to bet your soul. The odd thing about becoming a menad is they're not risking your soul for anything concrete. You're not asking for riches or worldly power or for one specific person to love. You're risking your soul to feel something, to feel the certainty that the world is enchanted, to know that magic exists at all. I wanted to outrun the nothing, capital N. There was nothing I would not have sacrificed. Friendships, relationships, the blood from the heel of my foot to get it. She wandered towards the new age, not because she wasn't looking for something, but because she was. And what was she looking for? Power, freedom, passion. But most of all, and to hear it very carefully, she sought that because she was trying to outrun the nothing. The creeping feeling that this life is as good as it gets and that there's nothing more. That you and I come and go, we live and die, we are governed by nothing other than randomness and chance and we are powerless to change our minds or to change our world and she turned to the new age because she would do anything to believe that this life had meaning to it, that she didn't have to create for herself. And she did. She would. And you don't even have to turn to the new age to to want to outrun the nothing. You just have to be a country music star. We just finished the Ken Burns series last night. I committed to you fully. It is wonderful storytelling. But I'll tell you, it is story after story after story after story of people that are looking for just the right line, just the right melody, just the right lyrical image, all for what? To get one hit on the top of the chart. And they, like Tara, will give anything to get there and to stay there. And that means they will sacrifice their bodies. They will sacrifice their marriages. They will sacrifice their children. They will sacrifice their relationships. They will die early because they want to outrun the nothing. To outrun the idea that there is nothing more to this life than just my music. Christian Wyman is a poet. He grew up in Texas. And he talks about the fatal flaw in believing that you can outrun the nothing. He says this, So long as your ambition is to stamp your existence on existence, your nature on nature, then your ambition is corrupt and you are pursuing a ghost. That's our plight. We don't wander aimlessly. We're trying to outrun the nothing. And you don't have to be a new age aficionado or a country music singer to believe that. I know you and I are really conscious about what we're running to, but have you ever asked yourself what you're running from? That's our plight. That's the condition we find ourselves in. And that, friends, is one aspect of the simplicity on the other side of the complexity of the gospel. And it is into that plight that a servant steps And that servant steps in a particular fashion, which is the second thing we have to get to. This servant steps into our plight, not like a doctor scrubbed in, totally sterile, walks into the calm, serene environment of an operating room. It's not like that. This servant 
steps into our plight, much like a soldier steps out of a foxhole into a field of battle. He has come to rescue us from a deep plight that no ethics or virtue class can ever remedy or rescue us from, but he's going to take hits in the process. It's a plight we find ourselves in, but it's a servant that walks into our plight to give himself to a passion. And that passion, I mean in two senses. A passion in terms of an intensity of devotion, but also an intensity of suffering. In fact, it's the willingness to enter into an intense experience of suffering that explains his devotion, or that that proves his devotion. And that intensity, that devotion, that passion is out to communicate to us the simplicity on the other side of the gospel. And that passion manifests in a few ways. It is first expressed in the passion of serving those who didn't esteem him at all. And you hear that there early in chapter 53 when it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This is a servant with no reputation, with no renown. Nobody cares. Nobody's heads are turned. And it sounds a lot like what we hear even in the first chapter of John's gospel when it says of Jesus, he came unto his own people and his own people didn't receive him. And then just a few verses later, you've got Nathaniel, whom Philip brings to Jesus. And he says, hey, by the way, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, already, off the bat, Jesus? Jesus who? He's gotten a reputation. Why do I emphasize that? Because this is a Jesus, this is a servant, who is not fueled by the esteem of others to be faithful to his mandate. He doesn't require it. He's not buoyed by the esteem, which is just nuts to me, right? Because how many of us are fueled by feedback most of the time? You soar when it comes in in spades with affirmation, and you go cower up in the fetal position in a ditch when the critique outweighs the affirmation. Or even when one affirmation or when ten affirmations are buoyed or torpedoed by one critique. We live by the esteem. This servant did not. And that's part of his passion. It's part of his intensity of devotion. It's not about what he gets from those he comes unto. Something else is beneath him. Something else is holding him together. In fact, not only is he not getting esteem, he's getting mistreatment. That's the second aspect of his passion. This servant enters into his passion, and that passion has everything to do with mistreatment. And that's why you hear words like despised and rejected, oppressed, afflicted, pierced, crushed. This one is assaulted for what he says, for what he does. And he doesn't run from it. He runs into it. He doesn't try to skirt it. He doesn't try to evade it. He walks squarely into it with his eyes wide open. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, a German Lutheran theologian, uh, at risk to himself and others, started a, a seminary, in, it's called Finkewalde, um, with a friend named Eberhard Bethke, and they uh, you know, lived on that seminary for a long time. Bonhoeffer comes to America for several years to study, to learn from other Western theologians. His life is profoundly transformed by his time in the black church in New York. He learns to worship 
like he's never worshipped before in the black church in New York. And then as World War II begins to loom on the horizon and the Third Reich begins to ascend to its great power, people are telling him, you should not go back. You will have a target on your back. And he says, I can't stay here. I can't leave my people in the lurch. I can't, I can't forsake the mandate that the, the one who suffered for me lays upon me. I have to go back. And so he does. And yes, sure enough, a target is on his back. He walks into it. He doesn't skirt it. And from that, not only is he mistreated, he's murdered. And this servant will be mistreated and killed. And what compounds the mistreatment is that the third aspect of his passion is that he will be deeply misunderstood. This is one who it says there in verse 2, he was one from whom men hid their faces. He was one who entered into suffering and everybody looked at his suffering and thought, he apparently has done something wrong. Everyone looks upon him like Job's three friends looked upon Job saying, what did you do? Why has this befallen you? Confess. This servant, it will be thought, was one who apparently acted stricken and cursed of God, and yet he's acting on their behalf. That sounds a lot like Jesus, where it seemed like no good gift and no good work went unpunished, where no good opportunity or idea didn't go by without murmuring to occur, and which at many points, whatever good he did, whatever miraculous work he did, was assumed to be a work of a demonic power and not of the Lord. That's the misunderstanding that he experienced. And if you've ever misunderstood, it almost hurts more than if they'd hit you. I don't know why. It's almost like our reputation hurts more than our cheek. But the unkindest cut of all that this servant feels has absolutely nothing to do with what men do to him. The height of this servant's passion has everything to do with who it is who is ultimately responsible for his grief. And the deepest wound he feels is the one who comes from the greatest love he has. And you hear that spoken of early in the passage when you discover that what befalls the servant was not simply in view of God, but it came with the blessing of God. And so you hear that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God is not standing idly by. It was his plan. And that is perhaps the most inscrutable thing we might hear today. It's not the only time it's spoken of in those terms in Scripture, though. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is explaining to the Jews about what's just happened in Jesus, he explains, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Welcome to the paradox. Who is responsible? Men. But God. Yeah, they did it. But it was the Lord's plan. Christian Wyman, whom I've already referenced, he drifted from the faith in his adolescent years and in his 20s. And sometime in his 20s, he was diagnosed with um, a really serious form of cancer. And in the midst of that crisis, he begins to entertain the thought that perhaps Jesus is worthy of both attention and even worship. But somebody asked him, 
once he kind of made it back into that world. Why, why do you call yourself a Christian? Why aren't you just content with saying, you know, I believe in God and I have respect for multiple ideas, but why, why do you call yourself a Christian? Why go there? And he said this, it wasn't important to me until I reached a crisis in my life. I floated along like so many modern people, alert to a sense of otherness in some of my experiences, but unwilling to give it a name. I'm a Christian because it's the language I know. I'm a Christian because a God does not suffer with us, a God that is not suffering with us right now, is either hopelessly remote or mercilessly cruel. Wyman explains why he calls himself a Christian because he would say that in the story of this servant, of the story of the suffering one, he finds something rather compelling. Because if God has suffered, then he understands our suffering like no other deity can claim to. He has sympathy for us. He gets it because he's been there. And that's compelling. And that's why the story is compelling to him. And yet, beloved and welcome guests, let's be clear about why this servant suffers. It's not because there is intrinsic virtue in the suffering itself. The servant, nor Jesus, suffers for the sake of suffering. There's something else at work. There's some other purpose in play. This passion into which he enters to answer our plight had one purpose. And that purpose is seen most evidently towards the end of this text, but it's also seen in more stories that you're familiar with than you might ever have imagined. The reason I can say to you with both eyes open that there is a simplicity of this gospel on the other side of this complexity is because this story has found its way into all sorts of stories. And how I'm going to show that to you is I'm going to show that to you. Here's three and a half minutes of hearing the same idea that you just heard in Isaiah manifested in all sorts of stories. Just you watch. Remember, Mowgli, greater love hath no one than he who lays down his life for his friend. Look, you can save her, Cal. You can save all of them.
of all tragedies, Harold. The hero dies, but the story goes on forever. Would you not agree that the story of one who has given himself for the good of others has not penetrated into the culture? We can't escape the story. And both Vader and that British officer in The Last of the Mohicans that was filmed down here at Lake Lure back in the 80s, that's, that gets at the, the amazingness of this story because it's those two characters that the last people you would ever expect themselves to give of themselves for the good of another Jesus is the unlikeliest one you would ever expect to be able to do that for others. He didn't suffer for the sake of suffering any more than any of them suffered for the sake of suffering. They did it for another reason. And the third aspect and the last aspect of the simplicity of the gospel on the other side of its complexity is that this servant enters into this passion that they might bring us his peace. And you hear it spoken of there later in 53 when it says in verses 4 and 5, Surely he's borrowing our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What peace? Friends, you know what our plight really is? Our plight is a concerted effort to flee to flee things that we're afraid of, to flee our regrets, to flee our failures, to flee that thing that we haunted by the idea that our eyes will one day close in death. But also we will flee that fear of never being loved and never having belonging. That's our plight. And it is this servant then enters into this condition and comes to cover our transgressions, cover our guilt, and he is the one to give an answer to our fear of death. But the one, one thing this servant does to bring us peace is what you hear towards the end of the passage there 
In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, what? Make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. What is that word righteous? What does it mean to be accounted righteous? The righteousness of God is having his favor. It is having his kindness. And our problem is, it is our sin, our waywardness, our wandering, our plight that disqualifies us from that righteousness. But it is this servant by his passion that requalifies us for it. That's the gospel. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Our plight, we cannot serve ourselves. The devil is in too deep. And he enters into his passion that he might qualify us for a righteousness that we not qualify ourselves for. And that's a story that sticks. And that's a story that sticks. You know who it also stuck for? Her name was Tara. And you heard about her earlier. And she said this. I sacrificed all of myself. I emptied myself out. I hit bottom in a thousand different ways. And I got what I wanted in a thousand more. And then somewhere in the middle of my seeking a vague and generic sense of poetry, I found a specific one. One rooted not in a vague sense that magic was real and that the world could at any time be an enchanted one. But in a concrete sense that at one particular place, at one particular time, the laws of nature had been suspended. Which is to say I became a Christian. The faith I found proclaimed a sanctified world and a redeemed one, an enchanted world, if you want to call it that, but one where meanings were concrete. It offered me not just a sense of emotional intensity, but a direction in which to channel it. It contained magic, not for the sake of magic, but rather miracle for the sake of goodness. God died and came back from the dead, not because magic was real, but because love was stronger than an unmagical world. What did it provide her in the way of outrunning the nothing? It's a story not just about not nothing, but about something. It's a story not just about the possibility of a world with meaning in it, but a story about a world where the meaning is quite specifically and utterly fully love. It is a world that is predicated upon the love of a creator who has built a good world and who, when sin afflicts it, comes into that world in all his vulnerability, in all his mortality to save it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And that's why we're coming to this table again. Because that is the story of one who saw our plight of wandering, looking for all a myriad ways to outrun the nothing and finding it inadequate to the task and saying, I'm in and I'm for you. And when he does, he can't accomplish it without entering into his passion. And by that passion, he's come to give us a peace. And that's why we have to keep coming to this table. Because look, I'm afraid. And I can lose faith. And I am like that father of that son. And in that passage when Jesus offers to heal his son, I believe, help my unbelief. He knows we're frail. We are but dust. But that is the story he's come to tell us. And that is the meal he's come to give us. And that's why when the Apostle Paul says, don't come to this table unless you examine yourself, I think in the full simplicity of what he means is this. If you would come to this table, then please would you please stare in the full face the plight that you find yourself in that's deeper than you can fix. And stare at this table the suffering to which it alludes. But most of all, the peace 
that comes by it. That's why we eat. Because somehow, in some mysterious way, that Jesus didn't see fit to explain, but we'll just take him at his word that he's in it. And that in this bread and his wine, he is there. Because on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take it as often as you will, and do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ was our Passover lamb. He devoted himself to a passion that we might have his peace. And therefore, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Hallelujah. This table is for sinners who believe that the Lord has come to save. If that describes you, the table is for you. Come and eat of it. If that story does not yet describe you, and you could not approach it with integrity, that I would encourage you to remain in your seats and only to reflect on that story, to consider its truth. I even invite you to put your faith in that story, to put your faith in the one who was passionate enough to enter into your plight that you might have his peace. That we might then examine ourselves properly in keeping with Paul's recognition and admonition that we consider ourselves and the body before we partake. I'm inviting us to a public confession of sin. It may reflect the reality. It may only reflect your reality at a future date or in the past. But let's us confess our sins together. And then let me remind you one last time of his pardon. Would you join me? To enrich me will not diminish your fullness. All your loving kindness is in your son. I bring him to you in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay for my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness. His sinlessness for my transgression. His purity for my uncleanness. His sincerity for my guile. His truth for my deceits. His meekness for my pride. His constancy for my backslidings. His love for my enmity. His fullness for my emptiness. His faithfulness. His obedience for my lawlessness. His glory for my shame. His devotedness for my waywardness. His holy life for my unchaste ways. His righteousness for my dead works. His death for my life. Amen. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the simplicity of the gospel on the other side of its complexity. Now, come feast on the simplicity, if you will.